character would have would have shined a lot more. I think would have been more subtle than that over the top uh, Tommy Lee Jones. There was a podcast called the Sequel Cast. They talked about movies. And they talked about something else called boobies. The Sequel Cast. It's the Sequel Cast. It's the Sequel Cast. www.sequelcast.com Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. This is a podcast devoted to reviewing movies and franchise one movie at a time. You can check out our website at sequelcast.com. Send us an email, sequelcast at gmail.com. Check out the Twitter account, twitter.com slash sequelcast. This is your host, Uncle Milkshake. And we are in the midst of a retro Batman movie uh, series of episodes. And this episode we're covering Batman Forever. What do you get when you take Jim Carrey, a very frustrated Tommy Lee Jones, and a weird Drew Barrymore cameo and uh, throw it in one movie? Plus, with Val Kilmer as Batman, you get Batman Forever, directed by Joel Schumacher. This is your host, Uncle Milkshake. With me is Thrasher. Howdy. And Dr. Burton himself. Hello, Dr. Burton. Hello. What are you Uncle a doctor Milkshake? of? Yes. I can, I can hear the rage just melting off of your voice. I'm going to bring up the uh, the Wikipedia article for Batman Forever so I can um, have something to reference. I want to get the year right when this came out, but when Batman Forever came out, this was a huge deal at the time in theaters. Do you recall that? It came out in 1995. Oh, yes. So I, I was um, just finished with sixth grade in middle school, about to enter seventh grade, and I, I saw this in the theater, I think, like two or three times. I was... Uh, Crazy about Batman from seeing Batman and Batman Returns as a child and as a as a young teenager, the uh, the homoerotic antics of Batman Forever were, were quite the treat. Now, see, it's very interesting that you bring that up. I was wondering um, if we could talk a little bit about who took you to the movies. Sure. Um, so I, I in middle school I, I lived in Marietta, Georgia, which is a suburb north of Atlanta. The address is beep. Okay, and. That was a failed joke. I could walk to the movie theater from where I lived. It was maybe a mile hike, but I, my mom would usually drop us off, or carpool me and some of my friends, or I'd ride with one of my friends' mothers, and they'd, we'd, they'd drop us off at the theater. And right next door to the movie theater was a store called Media Play, which was like a, a hillbilly cousin to Best Buy. And uh, a lot of summers were spent in that area. So I just went with uh, middle school friends. What about you, uh, Dr. But Burton? your mother, your mother took you? Oh, she drove me to the theater. She did not see it in the theater with me. I just saw it with my friends. Ah. So you had a very positive female role model in your life. How close were you to your father at this time? Uh, my parents were in the early throes of a of a divorce, so their relationship has been strained, but it was uh, in particular strained at that point, much like uh, Jim Carrey's penis is strained against the Riddler's costume. It's, it's, I have to say it's very interesting that you, you remark on the costume, the, the leotard, almost like a second skin as the <laughs> character of uh, Edward Nigma becomes, of course, this character, the Riddler, uh, self-obsessed with his own riddles and his own uh, pride. And as we all know, the pride cometh before the fall. Thrasher, what say you? 
Uh, well, the Ape Council is convened. Um, <laughs> no, I uh, I saw this film uh, opening night, actually. Oh, okay. uh, the, This movie, uh, a, a lot of things ha- were happening at once uh, in my life when this film came out. Uh, but, uh, you know, my father was nice enough to take me to see it uh, opening night. We, we saw it. We had a good time. Uh, you know, we, we bonded over it. But this film came out just as I was... Uh, at at the beginning of my Batman fatigue, uh, a fatigue which has lasted to this day, the only with only one glorious exception, when uh, on the Kids WB network they merged Batman and Superman into the Batman Superman Adventures, right? And I really got in, you know, I really liked that animated interpretation of Batman, but and Batman Beyond. But when it comes comes down to it. This film really marks the point where I just got tired of Batman. I got tired of hearing about him. I got tired of reading about him. Uh, I got tired of of, uh, of of almost every aspect of the Batman mythology and the Batman fandom. Well, 1995 was a huge year in an early period, uh, Jim Carrey, when he became a Hollywood star. In that year, 1995, Jim Carrey was in The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, which I think is one of the finest comedies of the past 20 years. Ace Ventura 2, When Nature Calls, and Batman Forever. That's a lot of Jim Carrey. And those were all big, big hits at the time. You know, you know like lately Jim Carrey's been doing more serious stuff, been a lot more low-key. But um, that was arguably the height of his popularity, would you say? Uh, no, I, I think the height of his popularity... Um... Well, you know, I don't know. I guess, I guess that was that was the height of Carrie mania. Yes. Um, he, he wasn't a. Be- I, I, he was very popular, but I wouldn't say he was a beloved household name at the time. Mm. I think he was enough of a character uh, through his Ace Ventura characters as well, uh, and his comedic work, especially after The Mask, that he did become a household name. Whether or not he is beloved. I think it took things uh, like The Prestige and some of his more serious work. Well, he's not in The Prestige. The Truman Show, but... things like that. I'm sorry, not The Prestige. <laughs> what is that movie? The Majestic. Oh, right, sure. Okay. Um, movies like that. Eternal Sunshine that, of the Spotless Mind. And of uh, The Truman Show. Yeah, sure. Yeah, right. That which is definitely great. an interesting look at uh, paranoid schizophrenia. Um, the idea behind, I guess, his comedy was he led a very rough life as a, as a youngster. Uh, he, he didn't really grow to heights until he became a comic, a stand-up comic, and uh, was picked up for a living color. And his work on there propelled him, um, as it did certain weigh-ins, uh, into stardom. Well, his uh, being early, his a, early a, stand-up... A white character on a, a show, the only white male actor on a show populated by mostly black men, it, it's very easy to stand out. And in addition, he his early stand-up career consisted of uh, a lot of um, imitations of celebrities, a lot of impersonations, vocal and physically. Which definitely helped in The Mask and things like, uh, what is it? Um, it's been sure he does a few. Oh, that's true. Again, a lot he of voice. comedy voices. Yep. A lot of a lot of masks, you could say, that he wore. Uh-huh. Um, and in this, I mean, in this, comparatively, the costume for when he plays the Riddler, I mean, think about 
the way the characters evolved in the comic book is he looks more of a gentleman. He has the bowler hat, uh, the jacket. This was a much more of a of a throwback to the Adam West uh, Batman. Uh, what was the name of the actor who played the Riddler in the original? Uh, Frank Gorshin. Gorshin. Frank Gorshin. And there's a lot of Frank Gorshin in in uh, Jim Carrey's performance here. Yes, yes. The frantic attitude, the the kind of sliding up to someone to ask a question. That biting his tongue and giggling at the same time. So again, we, let, let's, can we talk a little bit about... Um, well, I don't know if we should talk about the nefarious plan of the Riddler. Well, I think, I think we ought to ease into that. Uh, uh, and, and actually, Doctor, you haven't uh, told us about how you first saw this film. Oh, Are you trying good. to hide something from us, Doctor? Is there another side to your coin that you don't want to reveal? Um, again, I don't think this session is about me. Uh, let us continue. Very well. I have to say, um, so, you know, Batman, at least the film fan tries, I, I know very little about the comics, as I've stated before in earlier episodes, is almost more about the villains than about Batman himself with the film fan tries. And we talked briefly about Jim Carrey as the Riddler. The other main villain in this piece is Tommy Lee Jones as Two-Face. He's point, a fascinating uh, character. Half of his face is horribly mangled and scarred. And the other half is purple. <laughs> Wait, let me see if uh, Will drops The other half is purple. Yeah, the other half is purple. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it before him, because I knew it was coming. That's yeah. a good line. It's a, it's a very good line, yeah. Um, I was telling Dr. Burton before he started recording, I've listened to the audio commentary on the uh, the DVD and the Blu-ray uh, by the director. Joel Schumacher, the director Joel Schumacher does it, and really? uh, his Batman and Robin one in particular is quite interesting. But for Batman Forever, he he's Joel Schumacher is a pretty positive, upbeat man, but he has few kind words for Tommy Lee Jones, who treated Jim Carrey like shit. Because at the time, even though Jim Carrey was popular when it came out, when they were filming Batman Forever, Jim Carrey was a, a no name, you know, Hollywood star, and Tommy Lee Jones did a over-the-top, like, almost mean-spirited performance just to try to outshine Jim Carrey in every scene. See, again, I think if they had gone the way they should have with Billy D. Williams, the would have would have shined a lot more, I think, would have been more subtle than that over-the-top uh, Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, sadly, I, I really do not like the betrayal of, um, of Two-Face in this movie. Uh, he's a man of dual identity, as we've seen in the uh, newest Batman movie. Well, that's a um, frightening look of Two-Face, right, in The Dark Knight. Uh, I mean, it's a much darker, more serious tone. This yep. is a man who is trying to attempt to take revenge on everyone instead of with this character that is just trying to create chaos and try to, I guess, steal money and such. Instead of being the the district attorney who would then turn his attention towards not just those, I guess, not just those who've done him wrong, but also those criminal sorts. Uh, if you see, if you see in the cartoon, the, the well-done Batman adventures, uh, Harvey Dent is scarred seeking to take out Thorn, uh, Rupert Thorn, uh, a big gang boss. He's scarred as uh, somebody throws acid in his face in a criminal proceeding he decides to be like Batman. 
have a dual identity, but he, as district attorney, could not go as far as he as as Batman could, and he definitely went further as Two Face to get revenge and take out his aggression on those he felt did him wrong, including, of course, the Batman, who was not able to save him, who was not able to take out the villains because of his code. Right. But in this, there's none of that. There's no relation between Harvey Dent and Bruce Wayne or Batman. There's nothing. There's just, oh, this guy got acid in his face. And- That's why he's crazy. And yet he has two super, super hot, ah, oh, ah, oh, sugar and spice, played by Drew Barrymore and Debbie Mazar. Now, what has Debbie uh, Mazar been Drew from? Drew Barrymore. Oh. No, yeah, I, I agree. That's a, you know, they, they have some very fun scenes. Oh, and, God, uh, Drew Barrymore. I, I do want I to mention that, this, that Thrasher is having a lot of technical problems, so he might be able to jump on later, but if not, he'll might record some things and I can patch them in later. Fair enough. When this episode comes out in six months' time. Woohoo. Okay, so with Batman... Yeah, so with Two-Face, you know, on the DVD, and there's some deleted scenes on the uh, the two-disc DVD or the Blu-ray version, they mentioned 30 minutes was cut out of the runtime of Batman Forever before it was released in theaters. Ah, oh, jeez. And, um, you know, that, that's never a good thing. That's a significant... Why does that sound... That sounds like something that Joel Schumacher would do. I want to make a super long movie. I guess originally the... Uh, so, I mean, Batman Forever, the version that's out now, is about two hours long, so originally it was closer to two and a half hours, mm-hmm. uh, which is would be pretty long for a, a Batman movie. But I guess a lot of the material is more of a psychological backstory for Batman, and in addition, there is material where... Um, at the beginning, it talks about Two-Face breaking from prison, and Two-Face murders, like, some prison guards and sort of makes the bat signal with their blood on the wall. There's some slight darker material, but I don't think anything so amazing that you're like, wow, that used to be such a deep character, because you have Jim Carrey being manic, you have Tommy Lee Jones being manic. You know, it's like oil and oil instead of oil and vinegar sometimes you need. And you have a problem with that, with, I guess, with uh, Tommy Lee Jones trying to outdo... Jim Carrey, the movie itself becomes too goofy. Even when I was a, even when I was a kid watching this movie, I felt it was too goofy. Yeah, I think especially now. Um, I really cringed during the movie. I mean, there were just so many parts. Jim Carrey's performance is always over the top. He wasn't subtle at this time. No, he wasn't. I think it worked. You know, I mean, with the other roles he was doing, Ace Ventura, The Mask, I think the Riddler fits in that milieu, but... The only time he was cool, the only time that I thought he was actually acting well, was before he put that uh, brain drain thing on him. Before he put the... What's it called? Oh, um... What the is... helmet. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's the helmet where... So, his his evil plan is he's trying to make something people buy to their TVs and it makes it like it's it's 3D or virtual reality I guess was it was a big deal at the time and um but the problem is when people put this device into their TV and put it on their heads the uh the riddler sucks all their brain power and becomes almost a godlike uh being in his fortress he becomes basically the smartest man he wants all the answers to everything but i mean it is i can understand why Bruce Wayne wouldn't have... It was, he worked for Bruce Wayne, and he seems to... The more information that he puts into his brain, 
He winds up killing a, a not a coworker, but his boss. He winds up killing uh, his manager. Um, and he just does all this evil stuff. Throws him out the window, sort of like uh, Christopher Walken did to Catwoman. But I wonder, is it, is it the information or is it the, the godly pride, the the idea that if he's going to become a god, that he's not hold to moral standards. You know, that's a pretty good point. I'm not quite sure how to react to that. You were you were mentioning um, earlier about Drew Barrymore and Disney yes, Mazar as Sugar and Spice. The original name uh, for those characters was Leather and Lace. That's what Schumacher wanted, but the studio thought um, that was too racy. There, but there already is. There is actually a villain team called Leather and Lace. Um, they might have had some problems with the. Um, but there's also uh, I know there's a, a a duo named Sugar and Spice. So the, I don't know. So maybe it was just they thought that was a little too risque, because Debbie Mazar with these weird hair extensions and this really nice leather corset and bustier. Um, and then Drew Barrymore and just lacy prettiness with a boa and a fur coat thing. Oh, God. I mean, they're, they're used very sparingly, but where they are used is these, just these nice little cameos, just these nice little insertions of their characters um, into the scenes, especially Drew Barrymore as she dances with Bruce Wayne at a party run by a, uh, Edward Nigma after he becomes like, super rich from his invention. And this is called Batman Forever. We haven't even talked about Batman yet, but before we jump into Val Kilmer as Batman, Robin is a big deal in this movie. He hasn't been in any Batman movie up to this point, uh, of the ones we've been talking about, Batman and Batman Returns, on the past two episodes. So Chris O'Donnell as Robin, he seems a bit older than sort of the... Uh, he is in the comics, am I right? Or there's a few different Robins, oh, yes. isn't there? Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Is like there have been a bunch. The first Robin, um, that was. Let me make sure I get this right. The uh, first Robin was Dick Grayson. Then it was Jason Todd. And then it was Tim Drake. I really hope that's right. If I'm not, you feel free to write in. Um, <clears throat> Send us emails. But uh, they, they follow this. They follow this uh, as Dick Grayson's origin. He was part of a group called the Flying Graysons, uh, an acrobatic troupe at a circus. His parents were killed as the, I guess, sign by a local fixer that the circus should pay up because accidents happen, and that accident happened to be the Flying Graysons plummeting to their deaths from the high wire that was uh, slightly cut. Um, you know, I do think that part movie, in the though, film showing Robin with his family is done less goofy than perhaps some of the other parts. Uh, no. No? Because, again, it has this horrible two-face <laughs> uh, with a bomb. With a ridiculous bomb, too. Uh, and it's like, and then Bruce Wayne is watching the show. He just happens to be in the audience. And because the kid's Here's my problem with it. Because Chris O'Donnell is so much older than a real Robin would be, yep. the idea that he becomes a ward or that he becomes like Bruce Wayne's going to give him a place to live for a bit. What the fudge? Right. I mean, that's 
he's old enough. He's old enough. He could have stayed in the circus, or he could have just gone on his motorcycle and gone somewhere else in the world instead of living at a mansion and learning how to be a crime fighter. I'm not positive on this, but I believe in, I believe in the commentary they mentioned someone they wanted at one point for um, Robin would have been like Macaulay Culkin. Although I think at this point he would have been too old, but... Hold on one second. Yes, Mother. Chris O'Donnell. Batman Forever, yeah, is the Rob... Right. Chris O'Donnell is Robin. There's no reason to have somebody that old as a Robin, except for the idea that, oh, he's got acting chops. What, did he, what had he been in besides The Rainmaker? The no, reason why not. they put him in is they needed someone to attract teenage girls to see a Batman movie. And they admit as much on the commentary... That's why they aged him up a bit. But, uh, you know, part of Batman, this very um, antisocial, weird uh, billionaire character raising this little kid. And, you know, that's part of the the fun of the Robin relationship with Batman. And you lose a whole lot of that with the the age increase in Batman Forever. You get some, like, back-and-forth fighting, but what if they would have cast Christian Bale as Robin at the time? No. No. He was Actually, a teenager at the time. He was. That's an interesting idea. He would have sounded like Cookie Monster the think, whole time. I was thinking, um, if you had somebody young, they did it well in um, Kick-Ass. With the girl, with the young girl, uh, Maddie McDonald, Mc, McDaniel? The hit girl. Who played hit girl. Yep, yep. She went through training and stuff, and she was young enough if you've gotten somebody with that talent and really forced them into a training um, into a training regimen, you could have produced a really good actor. But maybe because they were so rushed, like, oh, let's, beefcake, Chris, Chris, get in here. But again, the idea that uh, two faces behind it, it really cuts the the dramatic the dramatic feel of the movie, because you have such an outrageous character. Why is he doing this? What's the emotional investment? Other than, oh, this guy killed your parents with a bomb and being ridiculous. It makes you more angry. It makes me angrier at the script. Hmm. Again, if you had had Billy D. Williams as a, as Two-Face, as a crime boss. Sure. More of a straight man. Much darker, yeah. Going back to the streets. Had him as a straight man to Jim Carrey's and like where things like did you did you ever see Sky High? No, but I know Kurt Russell was in that and um yes. there's a character who's kind of like this jester joker type character and whenever he gets too out of bounds, the main villain basically either grabs him or pushes his face or something or grabs his hand and twists it and he says, Uncle, Uncle and shuts up. If you had had a darker character that could shut Jim Carrey up to kind of assert who is the bronze. Because, again, in this, they have, like, little repartees where uh, Two-Face is knocking people out and Jim Carrey is trying to knock people or the Riddler is trying to knock people out. Again, showing that Two-Face is supposed to be the muscle. He's the one with all the troops. He's the one with all the guys. Um, Jim Carrey, the, I mean, I'm sorry, I keep saying Jim Carrey because he's the name I know. Riddler, all he has is a machine and a bunch of money now. When you're talking about Batman and Robin, it makes me remember the very first uh, Batman comic I read is uh, when I lived overseas. It was something titled 
Um, the very first Batman comic I read when I lived overseas was uh, something that at the time called Batman Year Three, and it talked about the origin of the first Robin and his interaction with Batman. And it came out in 1989. I can send you a link to the wiki page. But that was something, of course, where Robin was younger, and you get a lot more tragedy in that story. Again, it's not like with this. Yeah, we talk. They do go over Bruce Wayne's origin again. Because we're starting with a new actor, we'll wait on that. You're going with a character that has lost his parents. Whenever he sees somebody who has lost their parents, he automatically connects them to himself. With an adult, it shouldn't be the same connection. It should be with somebody the same age he was when he lost his parents. Exactly. It's almost a mirror of sorts. He could make, you know, he can raise himself as he would have wanted to be treated instead of being by, you know, he wouldn't he wanted to raise someone more less messed up than he is. Did you see the link I sent you? No. It's in the group conversation. It's pretty cool cover art, but I guess that Batman Year 3 story has never been collected in a trade paperback, which I think is interesting. Oh, I remember The Nun. Yes, I remember this one. Yeah, so that that was the first Batman comic I read. Wow. Yeah, I actually, I believe I have this upstairs. Um, But yeah, after he left Batman, he became Nightwing, which is the other character that you see on the cover there right <clears throat> and he is currently the present batman um if anybody is actually reading i don't know if this comes out in six months <laughs> he might not be the current batman because batman's coming back after being killed right i know batman died nope. in the comics but um but yeah it's it's a really dick grayson because he is the first robin and he grows up and sees the other robins that follow him because Batman keeps adopting kids. Um, he keeps tutoring uh, adolescents to become sidekicks. Actually, oh God, um, there, I have something that actually explains it so well. Wait one second. Okay, I have this DC Universe. Um, it's a comic called Legacies. It's all about superheroes through the eyes of a mortal man, just a regular guy. But back in the early days, most kid groups tended to operate on their own. The Boy Commandos, the Newsboy Legion, Little Boy Blue and the Blue Boys. They might well have had mentor, mentors like Captain Rip Carter the Guardian, but in the end, these kids knew how to handle themselves. You got like the Newsboy Legion and the Boy Commandos back then. Um, then all of a sudden, there's this whole new crop of costume crime fighters, and it doesn't take them long to start taking on apprentices. First, the Batman shows up with Robin at his side. Then a few months after that, suddenly the Green Arrow is working with a kid called Speedy. Aquaman is patrolling the seven seas with Aqualad. He says, it should have felt wrong putting children in danger like that. Instead, it was inspirational. And I really, I wonder at that because it's like... Well, if kids... it's a little kid reading a comic book and he sees a little kid hero, he can think, oh, I, I, I can be something. I can, maybe one day I'll go on adventures and toss grenades at Nazis. I don't know. You would hope so, but again, the whole trope of these people, they've been forced into it because they lost their parents. Mm, If Batman's parents had never been shot, would he have become a crime fighter? Would the supervillains that he's fought have existed? It's the idea of what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Um, Would these villains have still sprouted up if there had been no Batman? Which, again, is another thing that's that's brought up in the, uh, which is brought up in the comic. You all right, Mom? Um, so back to Batman Forever, we've talked a lot about the relationship of Batman and Robin. 
What about Val Kilmer as Batman? I think he does a pretty good job. I love, in a completely male, non-homosexual way, <laughs> maybe a little homosexual, I love Val Kilmer. He can do no wrong in my book. He, you know, he's one of those actors, he's, he always makes very interesting choices. The problem is, is all of his choices are so close to each other, mm. but I like that as well. Um, his Batman is very dark and brooding and has nightmares about his parents being killed um, and how this relates to him being Batman. Okay. He doesn't make a good... Now, let me, let me, let me, put the, let me take the, that back. He makes a pretty good Bruce Wayne. Yes. This is how I could see Bruce Wayne. Except I like it in the comic when sometimes he's a little bit, he's a little bit more like um, the last Batman. Uh, which again will lead to why George Clooney sucks in a second. <laughs> um, but I don't think he brings anything to the Batman aspect of the movie. What about I mean, those his lips? voice? His voice really doesn't change. No, and yeah, his head is his head is perfect for a Batman <laughs> cowl. I will give you that. But he doesn't really. He, there's not enough of a change between his Bruce Wayne and Batman, I, I, which, again, is another reason. Um, I do feel the romance you have in this movie uh, between the Nicole Kidman as Meridian uh, Chase yes. and yeah. Batman, or, uh, you know, and Batman or Bruce Wayne, however you want to put it, is better done than the Vicky Bell stuff in the um, first Batman movie. <sighs> yeah, maybe a bit. I just think but again, I, I, I don't. That hair is very nice, very easy on the eyes. It is Nicole Kidman. I'll give you that, and she is. Um. And now she's a Botox injected sort of like ice queen. Like I don't know, she doesn't. She has a very flat look to her face. What she uses well, a lot of Botox. I love her accent. I don't care what you say. I never said anything about her accent. Botox doesn't affect <laughs> one's accent. Uh, if you put it in the right place. Um. <laughs> But as I've, I've always hated the Batman movies, and they have to do these, they do this because, they do this because of the movies. It's the movies. They have to give a female for him to interact with. There has to be that romantic aspect. There has to be somebody who's going to be either sacrificed or used as a pawn in a supervillain's game. And I really hated that in this movie. She's such a weird character. She's like, She's in love with Batman. She doesn't like Bruce Wayne, or I, I, I never really understand. She likes Bruce Wayne, but she likes Batman more because yep. he's like the darker, brooding type. But it like she likes Bruce Wayne because he's damaged and brooding. Ah, head. And there was more stuff that was cut out of the uh, original. This? It, this is written by Akiva Goldsman, who... Um, oh, wait. It's written by Akiva Goldsman. Screenplay by Lee Batchelor, Janet Scott Batchelor, and Akiva Goldsman, based on a story by Lee Batchelor and Janet Scott Batchelor. Um, Akiva, Akiva Goldsman nope. is the one mainly responsible for the screenplay, and he also did the script for Batman and Robin, but he's, you know, worked on the script for such movies as A Dangerous Mind, um, Hancock. I don't, he's done a Da Vinci Code, those movies. So he's done a wow. weird... My question becomes is, does, did anybody from the first two movies come over to this movie? 
Tim Burton was a producer. Yeah, but really, how much does that? I don't see his. I don't see any fingerprints. The only thing I can see is you have when he did the Batman movies, he did have a lot of sort of like the human form, as is these big statues in the city, and you have some of that in Batman Forever as well. But yeah, but you know though, I just I think that's just Schumacher. I just think that's Schumacher ripping off the genius that was Tim Burton. I mean, here you have it's a lot more of a candy coated. Uh, comic book look the colors really pop there's a neat uh fight scene with sort of neon and black paint i think that's kind of cool oh god that was so dumb really i think the look at least was interesting and it was different it might have been over the top but the the colors i thought were pretty interesting to look at you have some neat sequences where batman goes through the uh the ceiling at one point right he flips down into a fountain and starts fighting people yeah, that was weird. I didn't like, a lot of the stunts were so outlandish, they were very showy. What about the Batmobile? Batman's not supposed to be showy. What about the Batmobile on this? It looks a bit like uh, H.R. Giger's Alien. Well, can we talk a little bit about the Batcave? Because we get to see a lot more of that. Sure. We get to see a lot more of the tools. It's not just um, Bruce Wayne on a monitor anymore. Um, we have the round table that brings out this ridged penis Batmobile. Yes. Um, you're definitely right on the Geiger aspect. I don't know why it looks that way. I don't prefer it to the other. Um, I like it more streamlined. I had the I had the, the toy versions from the first two movies. Didn't want or need the one from the third or fourth or any of the Bat plane, Bat boat. Oh, God, the Bat plane. That kind of annoyed me. Yeah. I mean, one th- you were talking about Michael Keaton a bit before as Batman. You know, he turned down this role at the last second. He was offered $15 million to be in Batman Forever, and he turned it down. But, I mean, Michael Keaton's career since the Batman films and Beetlejuice hasn't been great. And I I think, you know, if any actor is going to take over for Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer is certainly an interesting choice. Okay. I'm just wondering. Yes. Why, then, did... Why ask Val Kilmer? What was he doing at the time? The closest thing I can think to a comic book kind of role he did, uh, uh, Top Gun, uh, Willow, right? He was in Willow. Willow was his fantasy, right? He was very good in that. He was comedic as well. Mm-hmm. But I'm just trying to think of, like, he was doing Jim Morrison. Oliver Stone, the Doors. And, yeah. and, like, I guess I'm just trying to see why... He'd done the FBI movie, uh, Thunderheart. Um, <coughs> Tombstone? But I, I don't, hmm? Tombstone? Yeah, but he hadn't played... He was Doc Holliday in that. If you if you need to see a movie, you need to see that one. Um, his Doc Holliday is so brilliant. Again, Val Kilmer is a good actor. I just want to know why they approached him. Was there anybody else in the running? Did Schumacher talk about anybody else? He did not talk about anybody else, but he said Phil Kilmer was uh, was great to work with. Could be a bit strange because he was a method actor. Um, it's interesting for Robin, another person that was considered besides Chris O'Donnell, was Leonardo DiCaprio, who I guess age-wise would have been more appropriate. Uh, I don't... I But still a bit again, too old, huh? I know they're trying to get, like, pretty kids. Yep. You know who I actually keep coming up in my head? Elijah Wood. That bug-eyed, mangaloid, toothed... (laughs) 
Um, I even think he had a bit old at the time. I don't know. He has such a weird face. He's a. I'm just he, saying. He's not a looker. I'm just saying. Uh, I know, but he was growing. He did grow up to be a skinny guy. I mean, he could have. Yeah, sure. If they had followed the role, he could have continued. It could have been. You know, I think he made a fine Frodo Baggins. Um, so. Uh huh. Yeah, talking about Tommy Lee Jones, a, a quote from the audio commentary. Jim Carrey was a gentleman, and Tommy Lee was threatened by him. I'm tired of defending overpaid, overprivileged actors. I pray I don't work with them again. Ooh. So, pretty big slam of a Schumacher by Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, another big part of those earlier Batman movies was the music by Danny Elfman. Here the music is by Elliot Goldenthal. And you have a different Batman theme, which is catchy, but... I don't think is quite as good as the Danny Elfman theme. Yeah, no, I'll agree with you there. I don't like the music in this. It's had a lot of pop hits. Yeah, um uh what's the one that you two did from this? Hold me, throw me, kiss me, kill me. Cuz wasn't that there was uh, there was a uh, I don't know if this is an urban legend. Wasn't the main villain for the Batman movie supposed to be somebody called Mephisto or some devil thing and they did an animated video for it? But then they changed the villain to the Joe, the Riddler and Two-Face. But I think that was just an urban legend. You know, Tim Burton was supposed to do the third Batman movie. And I believe the villain might have uh, might have been the Scarecrow or something at one point. Mm-hmm. Which you can see would be a Tim Burton kind of villain. Uh, but, Absolutely. But, but again, I'm not really sure. Um you know, the other huge song from this movie, of course, is Kiss from a Rose by Seal. That was uh, on the radio that whole summer that came out. Yeah. I did that. I know I've done that at karaoke at least twice. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about the characters, little, not much about the plot of Batman Forever, except... It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter. The plot gets the kind Schumacher of convoluted. Uh, the Riddler and Two-Face team up against Batman and Robin in, a, in their secret lair at the end of the movie. Which is made out of metal, but looks like rock. Ugh. And there's a line, Robin gets off of the, the bat boat or something, and he looks down and he sees, Holy rusted metal, Batman. And Batman looks at him and goes, What? And Robin says, These, uh, what does he say? Like, the rocks, it's metal. It's full of holes. They're perforated metal. Perforated metal. It's full of holes. And this is a, a reference to the Adam West Batman TV series. The next film we're covering, Batman and Robin, for next episode is very similar to the Adam West series in some respects with the uh, with the campy tone. If you think yeah. this is campy, you haven't seen anything yet. Oh, God. The fight scene between Robin and Tommy Lee is so goofy. Mm-hmm. It just makes me angry every time I watch it. Because Two-Face has to laugh at every single line. And, <sighs> again, he's trying to outdo Jim Carrey. But he's like, I got an idea. I got one. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Like, I don't know. Like, every single... <laughs> Every single line is about that terrible, <laughs> or delivered in that style. It. I really, that was good. Nice, <laughs> nicely done. I don't know. What would you say? What well, What can you say about this movie? It's It's a campy. It's a mainstream Batman flick. It's a campy mess. The problem is that it keeps going from the awful upbeat and craziness of the villains to the demure, dark, overly dramatic Bruce Wayne. Coupled with a bunch of, of funny puzzles that he has to solve to figure out what the Riddler is actually trying to do. Those are okay. That's kind of cute. I don't know. I like the way they were presented. I just was like, 
Yeah, that's what the Riddler would do, but is he really going to do it like this? And then the whole thing with him getting in the house, that made me, that also made me angry. The the bat bombs. Oh, oh, and the... They... Or the Riddler bombs, or whatever they were. To, uh... I kind of like the scene where Two-Face and the Riddler are breaking into a bank, beating up people, and the Riddler says, oh, it looks like fun. He tries to punch someone, ends up breaking his hand. And Wednesday. Yeah, again, it's showing that he's just the brain. Yep. That he has no brawn. He has no power over Two-Face. Other than that, he's furthering Two-Face's revenge or whatever actual motivation Two-Face has. So the year it came out, 1995, Batman Return... Batman Forever, I'm sorry, was the uh, second highest grossing movie that year in the United really? States. What was number one in 95? Ninety-five. Uh, uh, Toy Story. Okay. The original Toy Story. That makes sense. Fifteen years later, we have Toy Story three. So. Oh, wow. Okay. Sorry. Um, I got distracted by something going wrong. Um, well, the movie in itself. We're wrapping the movie up in towards itself. the end. Um, I guess before we wrap things up, I just have a question. Why was this called Batman Forever? Does that title make any sense? Oh, good question. Um, maybe because, you know what? Had it been forever <sighs> since Batman Returns came out? You know what? Ha 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 I see what you did there. Yeah. No, I think it actually could have been, it could have been because the movie was maybe supposed to be the last one. And they weren't thinking they were going to do any Batmans after this. Mm-hmm. So this is the last one, the last one, yeah, Batman Forever. This is all you're getting. Oh, I see. That's clever. This is Batman is eternal. This is how he is. Fuck Tim Burton. I'm Joel Schumacher. <laughs> I got really interesting trivia about Schumacher when we do Batman and Robin next episode. Okay. Because he originally intended Batman, the next movie after Batman Forever to not be more kid-friendly. But we'll leave that and as... And who put the kibosh on that? As a teaser. Who said you have to make it... Who in the studio said, oh, no, no, the, they'll never get this in Peoria? He was given the command to make Batman and Robin more toyetic, have as many action figures as possible. Man. Regardless, they... Batman Forever. Sugar and Spice action figure set? If not, they uh, there should have been. Wow, yeah, there should have been. I would have played with those. With a few extra openings, if you know what I mean. Wow. Uh, yeah, 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 I went there. So, Batman Forever... I think it's serviceable. Parts do make me make me cringe, but it's certainly a a weird direction after the Tim Burton films. But if you're going to show a Batman movie to a kid, this might be one of the more kid friendly ones. It's okay. If I it's if okay. I were a, if I were a listener, I'd go and read a comic book instead. Um, what would you tell him to read instead of watching Batman and Forever? They, I would. Tell if they could pick to... up a graphic novel. Ooh. You know, actually, I would go with the Batman Year One, Year Two, Year Three collected editions. No, but they Year Three really has not. Has Year Three been in a graphic novel? I don't think it has. Has to be. Year One and Two are certainly. Or they anyway, have to. but those. But there's no Year Four. No. But anyway, but Batman Year One is certainly a good comic. I've yet to read Batman Year Two, but that seems interesting to me. Um, you know, it's a much darker take than what you see in Batman Forever, but. You see some glimpses of what happens in Batman Begins out of Batman Year One. 
Although it's almost more of a cop story than a Batman story. Uh, yeah, I can agree with that. On some levels, you have a lot of. Yeah, he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be more of a detective, and they did highlight that a little bit. But I like the way they highlighted that in in Batman Returns. Mm. They made him much more investigatory than reactionary. Because again, he was like going after like. What is the motive? What? Why is this happening? Why would he do this? Why would he do that? Why? Who is she? Right. It's a real investigation I, instead of in Batman Forever. Oh, I get a uh, I get a pop up book in the mail. What does this question mean? I mean, there's something more simple. Yeah. In that portrayal. Again, it was it was a clever device. I mean, the Riddler. If they bring the Riddler in, if they make I another they, Batman movie, they are making the, another Batman movie, but. I hope if they Riddler, don't do the Riddler. He shouldn't be. He shouldn't be this Riddler at all. I'd like to see. This is not a I'd like to this see with the new Riddler. Batman movie what they do with Catwoman. Uh, I don't know. I like a bizarre online rumor was Cher is Catwoman, which is too well, awful no, to be true. She's too, <laughs> she's too old. They'll get somebody. <sighs> It'd be whatever happens to Baby Jane meets Batman. Good lord. Okay, uh, they'll come out with something better than that for the new Batman movie, although that's not coming out till 2012, sadly. Next time, we're going to be covering Batman and Robin. Ugh. Do we have to? So until next time, this is Uncle Milkshake and Dr. Burton saying... Dr. Robin. No, Dr. Burton, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> Dr. Burton saying... Oh, no, I got one, I got one. Okay. When it's a jar, not a jar. When it's a sequel cast. Very good. When it's a sequel cast, indeed. Howdy, sequel cast listeners. This is Thrasher with some of my supplementary thoughts on Batman Forever. Yeah, I first saw this movie actually on opening day. It uh, opened on June 16th, which happened to be my birthday, so uh, my father and I went out to see it. And you know, I, I enjoyed myself at the time, but I remember uh, afterwards... Uh, started to realize that I guess I was kind of disappointed in, in this movie. And I, I think the way, way I best expressed it to my father was, yeah, how how did the Riddler build that offshore base with no one noticing? There's a man running around, there's a villain running around with question marks everywhere. Then a big building full of question marks gets built. So many things in the movie seem to have that nonsensical nonsense to me. Like, it's what should be supervillain whimsy in this film comes off as being thoroughly bizarre. Like, the street punks being painted in neon colors and the fluorescent lights being everywhere. And uh, one thing I will say about this film, I actually think the casting, with the exception of Robin, I think the casting is great. I think, you know, Val Kilmer, uh, he's not a perfect Batman, but he's a very good Batman. I think Jim Carrey was a really good choice for the Riddler. Uh, same with Tommy Lee Jones. You know, Tommy Lee Jones could play a great gangster Two-Face. The problem is, no one in this film is asked to do a good performance. They're all asked to... They, they, they seem to be asked to do an unrestrained, zany performance. And I think that really hurts it. You know, Riddler, who's always been... Uh, at least my, my favorite interpretations of the Riddler have always been eerily calm. And, you know, they only, that you know, the Riddler that only loses control when you one-up him and show that you're cleverer than he is. But th this Riddler just kind of starts ramping up the crazy from the beginning. You know, he starts as a sort of meek, disgruntled office drone. And by the end of the film, he's an evil opera supervillain who just does nothing but cackle 
and and gleefully mince about the stage and in a not thoroughly entertaining way. The thing that kind of bothers me about the the interpretation of the Joker, or not the Joker, the Riddler in this film. The thing that bothers me about the uh, portrayal of the Riddler in this film, the Riddler is a, a villain with a great hook, and he's a master criminal. But he loves to prove that he's smarter than everyone around him, which is why he leaves those clues and trails and riddles. You know, he 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 wants that challenge. You know, it's not just enough for him to rob a bank. He's got to rob a bank in a big way that proves he's outsmarting everyone at the bank, everyone in Gotham City, and that's a great hook. But the film seems to need to give him a supplementary superpower. He's not just a, a master criminal who's an expert at riddles they outright make him a technological super genius. And like, we, you know, when we see the Riddler, he invents this machine that allows you to beam television directly into your head, which somehow apparently makes it better. And yet it's also uh, referred to kind of being like mind control. Well, no more than regular television. Uh, and as, as this technology develops, it turns out that anyone who's plugged into the machine, he can plug in, he can plug with it, and he can pull information out of their subconscious. So, you know, it's not it's not enough, that, and that's the other problem, you know, the Riddler, he wants to be, Mr. Edward Nigma, the Riddler, he wants to be rich, he wants to be powerful, well, he gets rich and powerful through his invention, but then in addition to that, he wants to memorize everyone's credit card numbers and do, you know, master criminal stuff, it, it seems like a really bizarre leap, you know, this is this is a man that could already have all the money he could ever want, with with his invention. I mean, how he could, you know, his love for riddles, he could turn that into a video game. Could you imagine, like, Fallout 3 being beamed directly into your head? Edward Nigma in this film could have invented that, but instead, you know, he just gets obsessed with criminality. And then, of course, there's Two-Face, and it's been said before, and it's going to be said again, and again, and again, and again, and I'm not going to stop. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, you know, his portrayal of Two-Face... Half of his face is hideously scarred and deformed, and the other half is purple. And and once again, Two Face, you know, really is he should be a, he's a great gangster type character, but in this one he's just a cackling, gleeful supervillain. The only thing that that separates the Riddler and Two Face in this film they're not separated by performances or motivation. The only thing that separates them are their costumes. They're both the same prancing, cackling. Villain, they would be mustachio twirling villains, but they just don't have mustaches. Now, there's something that has long bothered me about Batman adaptations. I, I refer to this as the Batman fallacy. Whenever anyone and and look look this up, please look up these interviews. Uh, whenever anyone does a new Batman interpretation, whether it's a movie, a television series, uh, and sometimes even comics or graphic novels. Uh, there comes a point in any interview with this creator where that interview, where, where, the, where the person who's doing the creating will say, well, you see, I wanted to get back to the original Batman, to the original Dark Knight. And no, they don't. That's a lie. Because the original Batman was a gun-toting, steroid-popping maniac who, uh, just a bloodthirsty vigilante who was very he's only slightly better than the criminals he's fighting only because he's fighting the criminals um batman has gone through a substantial amount of, of evolution i mean the batman that we know and love really did not come into being until the in, until the 80s 
where it was sort of codified, where, where the whole notion of Batman and revenge and the Dark Knight was really codified. He went through many different incarnations. There's the, the gun-toting maniac incarnation in the very, very beginning. There is the detective in a bat costume incantation. Or incantation. Batman! Uh, <laughs> if he teamed up with Zatara the magician, it would be an incantation. Uh, incarnation there... There is the pulp hero incarnation of Batman, the the camp hero from the Adam West series, the r ridiculous do-gooder from the 1950, late 50s, early 60s comics. There have been many different interpretations of Batman, and no one who says, I want to get back to the original Batman, ever does. They just go back to this kind of 1980s, Frank Millery, dark, dark detective type Batman. And, you know, I immediately become suspicious of a Batman project whenever I hear those infamous words, I want to get back to the original Batman. Even Joel Schumacher, in interviews for Batman Forever, said he wanted to get back to the original Batman. And, you know, pop, maybe in a sick kind of way, uh, he did, because there was a period in late 50s, early 60s, where all Batman villains were pretty much interchangeable cackling loonies that just happened to commit crimes. And there's a, there's a, I, I read a, a classic DC uh, crossover, Batman and Metamorpho, where the Riddler, the Penguin, and the Joker team up to stop Batman and Metamorpho, and they're all completely interchangeable. You could give a Joker line of dialogue to the Penguin, you wouldn't notice the difference. The title... Batman Forever is a title far too grandiose for this film. I mean, Batman Forever is what you want to call the movie that climaxes your Batman series, not the uh, not the film that just happens to pepper in some of the more characters, but still plans to have a sequel, you know, later down the road. In in all rights, this this film does focus quite a bit on the relationship between Batman and Robin. This one should have been called Batman and Robin. All right, the Riddler. Uh, when Edward Nigma, uh, you know, starts this whole business empire with his telepathic TV things, and you know, starts using it to gather blackmail and, and information on people, uh, Bruce Wayne's been refusing to use it. He was one of the people that originally uh, poo-pooed on Edward Nigma's whole idea of the the mind beaming television. So of course, Edward has has a grudge against him. So when Edward's having this big party to celebrate his amazing technology, there's a booth where people are trying it out. And finally. Bruce Wayne decides, okay, I'll try it out. And, and the Riddler's like, oh, I get to find out what's going on in Bruce Wayne's head. So the Riddler plugs into the feed and reads Bruce Wayne's mind, and all he sees is a bat. And so what does he think immediately? Oh my gosh, he's Batman. But that is such a leap of logic, because the only image he gets is, is a bat. Do you know how many supervillains and criminals in Gotham City probably have bats on the brain? All of them. Because they all live in fear that one day Batman's going to come and get them. He probably could have read Two-Face's mind and gotten the same image of a bat. Um, I've, I, I'm often very critical of a lot of superhero movies because, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with a lot of superhero mythologies. If you're going to make a superhero movie, I really, you know, I don't need to see the origin story of that hero because I already know it by heart. Uh, now, I don't mind if they do the origin story and they do it in a really good way and it helps to tell the story of the film. I'm fine with that. But, you know, by this is the third Batman film in this series. And by then, everyone in the audience should be, if, if, 
if not familiar enough with Batman's origin, at least familiar enough with Batman to just trust that there's a guy in a bat suit fighting crime. But this film seems to have a need to state and restate the Batman origin story with the parents getting shot and then Bruce Wayne running and falling into a cave and seeing bats and getting inspirations. Like, we, we already know this. Why does this film keep lingering on that? And I think the only reason it does is Schumacher seems to have a fetish in this film for showing us close-ups of bats flying in slow motion. We, we get that when Bruce Wayne's, Wayne's mind is read by the machine. We get that during almost all the origin story flashbacks. Uh... Okay, Chase Meridian. First, Chase Meridian is the name of a hero from... It sounds like the name of a hero from a terrible sci-fi action novel. But in here, it's the, the name of a psychologist and criminologist who uh, who is trying to, you know, who, who I guess wants to, to, to take care of, you know, you know, help to help Batman. She's got, apparently it's a crush on Batman, wants to help Batman get Two-Face. But, you know, she, she just, she only really serves, because this is the thing, I think Batman, if you paired Batman with a really, with a sexual, sensual, and competent woman psychologist, that would be an amazing pairing that you could probably get a wonderful story out of. But in this film, you know, she really is just the damsel in distress. I mean, everything you need to know about Chase Meridian, aside from the zany name, is summed up when Chase Meridian activates the bat signal and Batman shows up on the roof of the police station and finds Chase Meridian there. And Chase Meridian says, Batman, I've discovered something about Two-Face. It's his coin. He's obsessed with it. It's his Achilles heel. And then Batman's response is a, is a very, very polite version of, No shit, Sherlock! He flips the coin every damn time I run into the motherfucker. And yeah, that's, that's her contribution to the film. She tells Batman a piece of exposition that Batman already knows and that the audience has probably already picked up on. Once again, in Batman Forever, we have an instance of people who aren't Batman or Alfred getting into the Batcave. Uh, uh, so, uh, in, in this case, in this case, it is, you know, the Two-Face and and the Riddler, which, you know, they're, they're, they're villains. They, of course, would want to invade Batman's sanctum. But it's just, you know, they, they know who Bruce Wayne is. They, they know that Batman is Bruce Wayne. I guess their pride may prevent them, but why not just go to, oh, just, you know, track down Bruce Wayne, have another soiree, invite Bruce Wayne, and kill him there? Why break into his house, blow up the Batcave, do all sorts of, of you know, shenanigans? The Riddler's riddles don't seem to serve much of a purpose in this film, but not quite the same way that they serve no purpose in the Adam West Batman series. In the Adam West Batman series, it would, the, the Riddler's riddles were all part of the theater of the absurd. He would have a nonsensical riddle with a nonsensical solution that would still somehow allow Batman and Robin to foil the crime. You know, like, what kind of people are always in a hurry? Rushing people. Russians! And what's yellow and rights? A ballpoint banana. What does it mean? Someone Russian's gonna slip on a banana peel and break their neck. My goodness, these ne'er-do-wells are going to assassinate Miss Natasha Kitka. You know, and and in a fancy kind of theater, the absurd way, that makes sense. But in this film, the Riddler's riddles just seem to come off as set dressing. I never really feel that they give a substantial clue or allow the Riddler to taunt his adversaries. It's just like, you know... Uh, like the the match the matchstick riddle, it's just it's a simple straightforward riddle in a fancy ass box. The box is more the box that the riddle comes in is more interesting than the riddle, and it's more interesting than the riddle solution, and it's more interesting than for what that does to the film. Okay, uh, I 
I, I will admit this. I've had uh, I, I've I, I've had an on again off again crush on Drew Barrymore. You know, there there's certain movies she's in that I think she's very cute and very attractive. There's certain movies in where I think she's actually been quite good. And then there's certain movies she's been in that have Charlies and the t and Angels in the title where I think she's been terrible. But in Batman Forever, she has a cameo. Two Face at the beginning of the film, Two Face has these two sidekicks. Uh, a saccharine, sweet, sexy assistant who dresses all in, like, flowing white lingerie and blonde curls, like a weird, fetishized, grown-up, busty Shirley Temple, played by Drew Barrymore. And then a uh, one who's in all all black, and, you know, one, one sugar, one spice, one sweet, one sour. And, you know, they, and I, I, it's... It's a fun cameo. Uh, I it's and but I think Drew Barrymore it actually it actually works it actually works really well and and that's actually something I would like to see if if more absurdist superhero movies were being made I would kind of like it if recognizable actors took uh, cameo roles as sidekicks and assistants I think that would actually be pretty fun it it does add a little bit to the star power of this movie in a way that I don't think hurts the movie at all okay. I would like to know why the Riddler's costumes get increasingly over the top. Well, first and foremost, when, when Edward Nigma decides to become a supervillain, he's in his home, and uh, he's, listening, you know, he, he's listening to the one song from this movie that's actually on the soundtrack. You know, In your dreams you can blow his head off and live on Mars and have it your way. The whole song's actually really good. So he's listening to that. And he's trying to think of, you know, he knows it want, he wants it to be riddle, probably wants it to be riddle-based. And he's drawing sketches of, like, what he wants his costume to look like. And there's this, like, fortune-telling booth thing with a guy in it that looks more like the Riddler than the Riddler looks in this film. And it makes, and, but at the same time, it's like, well, you know, that, that, that's a perfect example of how he should be a perfect example of how he gets his costume. He just takes the jacket and top hat, or, I'm sorry, bowler hat, the jacket and bowler hat off this fortune-telling thing, green jacket, green bowler hat, puts on some green trousers, boom, he's the Riddler. But instead, he looks at that, gets his inspiration, apparently makes his own Riddler suit, which quickly becomes a Riddler Speedo, which by the end of the movie is like is a Riddler mask with crazy swirly hair that doesn't even look like question marks, bright red hair, like fur coats and sequins, and it's like, wait, why does... I, I mean, I guess he wants supervillain bling. That's the only explanation I can come up with. Also, also, when when Two Face, I both lo love and hate this. When Two Face and the Riddler break into break into Wayne Manor and subsequently the Batcave, they're wearing masks over their regular supervillainy outfits, and in a sick way, I kind of like that. I mean, at least by by this point, the Riddler in this film has has become such. And this is actually no. Now that I think about it, here's why I don't really feel the villains are that effective in this film. Both. Uh, both Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones are doing their own versions of the Joker. They've just turned their characters into the Joker. And I can see the, the Joker is a villain silly enough and gleeful enough in his villainy that he could put on a mask, like a tiny mask, and act as if no one should recognize who he is. But when the Riddler, such an intellectual villain, puts on a tiny mask over his Riddler outfit, it just it's silly. It doesn't make him look like a legitimate threat. Oh, and that, and when they get into the, when the Riddler gets into the Batcave, you know, he throws around these crazy, like, green bat bombs and blows stuff up. 
that sounds like more like something the, the the Joker would do. You know, if the Riddler got into the Batcave, like I would think he would lay clever riddle-based traps. Like for instance, hack into Batman's computer and actually like lock him out through a series of riddles or you know or something like that. Something something with some real something that would really inconvenience Batman beyond just blowing up the Batcave, and something that would uh, that would that would uh, you know play to his ego. And that, that's another thing, you know, I, I don't understand the geology, but I think it would have been great, and I know this would have been totally inappropriate for the movie, it would have been great if all those bombs structurally weakened the Batcave, the Batcave collapsed, created a sinkhole that absorbed, that just sucked down Wayne Manor like it was the House of Usher. Now that would have been an awesome climax for that scene. All right, now, the uh, we've, we've talked before about how, you know, generally speaking, the Batman, the archetypal Batman character, you know, doesn't kill his adversary. You know, Batman does not believe in murder. You know, because a murder is what inspired him to do what he does. So, uh, and yet, in a lot of these Batman films, he does, like in the first film, he does take a more direct hand in killing a supervillain. So, in the climax of this film, I, I like, I, I like the climax, the the, the climax of, of Batman's battle with Two Face. Just because it seems to really fit, it's actually it's an it's a climax far better than this movie deserves. Where you know uh, Two Face has Batman at his mercy, and then Batman points out, well, the coin, the coin's got to decide who lives or dies, and two and which is right there, Batman outsmarting the villain, and Two Face like, oh yeah, you're right, and he starts he he goes up to flip the coin, and what does Batman do? He throws up a bunch of extra coins, making it impossible for Two Face to find the outcome, and while Two Face is scrambling to try to find his original coin, the coin he's obsessed with. Two-Face falls down a shaft like the Emperor in Star Wars and dies. And that, I think, works, because Batman hasn't killed the villain. The villain has been killed by their own obsession. If Two-Face just didn't... If Two-Face just had the wherewithal to not run for the coins, heedless of his environment, he would have seen that, would have seen that shaft and wouldn't have fallen in it. I really like the way Two-Face is taken down in this film. He is undone by his own madness. But then you've got uh, then you've got Edward Nigma, the Riddler, who's hooked up to his telepathic TV machine, hooked into everybody's brains, and his you know his brain just gets overloaded. The thing that I don't quite get though is when his brain gets overloaded, why does his face melt? Like I can understand brain damage, I can understand burning his hair off, I can understand you know scarring on the forehead, but why does his whole face melt and his muscles seem to atrophy? Is this supposed to be some snide comment on couch potatoism? I don't know. But it just comes out, it seems like an excuse for a special effect. The climax of the film, or the climax, we've done the climax. The end of the film, uh, we get uh, we get Chase Meridian going to Arkham Asylum, where uh, the Riddler has been incarcerated. And she's been told that the Riddler says he knows who Batman is, and that he will only tell Chase Meridian. So she goes in there and you know, finds Mr. Enigma. Uh, who who is Batman? And the Riddler goes, "I'm Batman!" And just starts flapping his straight jacket arms like Batwing. And it's a fun image, but I guess it doesn't exactly make sense. Why does the Riddler's defeat make him think he's Batman? It just comes off as one to give Jim Carrey one last joke, one last zany moment to end on. Uh, while while I generally like Robin in this film, he is too old. He is too old. Like, I can buy him as an acrobat, but it's like, you know, he's when his parents die, he, he looks old enough to go on his own quest for revenge or continue in the circus. It's just, it just almost seems... It, it, he doesn't seem like Batman... He doesn't seem like Bruce Wayne's ward when, when Bruce Wayne takes Dick Grayson in. He seems more like Bruce Wayne's male friend. And I don't mean that in any derogatory way, but it, it's... 
you've you've got like a, a, a he's a Robin who appears to be in his late twenties, and they don't call him and they but they never pin down his age and they want to say he's younger, but they it's, it's he's just this he's just this you know athletic twenty year old twenty year old mid twenties guy who's just hanging out at Bruce Wayne's house. Uh, I it it's just a bit it's just a bit. It it just doesn't jive, you know. If he's got to be, if if he's going to be an older Robin, it ought to be a Robin who's been hanging around. It shouldn't be a Robin who's just starting. Also, Batman has been effectively working alone all these films. I don't entirely buy in the third film him teaming up with Robin and getting this whole extra suit made. But then again, we'll have plenty to talk about involving extra suits in the fourth film, Batman and Robin, which probably should have been called Batman Forever, if only to make the title completely and thoroughly ironic. Well, I guess that's it for uh, for my contribution to this episode of the sequel cast. My final thoughts, Batman Forever, it's not that good of a movie. If you like over-the-top performances, uh, particularly by Jim Carrey, then, then check it out. If you like... And I'm going to say this, really sumptuous design. There's a lot of sumptuous design in this film. You could, you could maybe even watch it for that. But, but beyond that, there's, there's just not much to recommend in this film. Oh, speaking of sumptuous design, though, why, why does the Batmobile look like a rave machine? It's got, like, all this exposed light-up circuitry and wires. It should be the sleek, black, stealthy sex machine of a vehicle... But instead, it, it, the bat, it looks like an electric zebra when it rides around. You know, maybe that, that's it. This is an electric zebra of a film. I do not recommend it, even for completists. That has been the downer ending from Thrasher on SequelCast. www.sequelcast.com